0: If you got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12, where we're going to be. We continue our series, Becoming Family. We've been diving into this idea, what it means to be the diverse yet unified family of God. Living on mission together, unified because of the work of Jesus, the work of the gospel. A Couple weeks ago, we talked about the table. We come every week and we gather around the table because we declare Jesus is enough to unite us in this room. Despite all of our differences, all the things that you make us unique, Jesus is sufficient. Two weeks ago, I talked a a pretty difficult message, unity amid diversity, but our, our differences, the things that can easily divide us, our opinions, how we hold them loosely, we fly no flag higher than the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what allows us to experience unity. It sounds good, doesn't it, but it's hard to practice. A couple years ago, the Office of the U.S. Surgeon General released this incredible study, I don't know if you were able to see this, but it really was incredibly well done, where they tracked the social trends from 2003 to 2020, and just what's happened. And by tracking the lack of connection that people actually have, they associated it with significant health risks. That social, social isolation is on the increase. From 2003 to 2020, social isolation has increased significantly. Household family uh, engagement has decreased. Companionship, which they defined as shared leisure for the sake of enjoyment, just friends that you enjoy hanging out with, has decreased. Social engagement overall with friends have decreased. They labeled this, they're calling this now, an epidemic of loneliness and isolation in America. It's the epidemic we're currently facing. They went on to say, poor and insufficient social connection and relationships is associated with an increase in heart disease, stroke, hypertension, diabetes, anxiety, depression, and dementia. Approximately half of U.S. adults have reported experiencing loneliness in their life, the highest category among young adults. It it really is an astounding study that they've done. When you've seen over 2003 to 2020, just in those 17-year span, how much relationships and connection has decreased. Here's what we do know. Humans, you and I are wired for social connection, but we are becoming increasingly isolated. You you can chalk this up to many things, just general lack of trust among people, people isolating themselves. Technology and social media have not helped us, right? That same study they did on loneliness and isolation, they said that people who are on social media for two hours a day had uh, about double the odds of reporting increased perception of social, social isolation compared to those who use social media for less than 30 minutes a day. We have a lot of people in our life, a lot of acquaintances, a lot of people through uh, digital friendships, but how many quality relationships do we have? The breakdown of family units, all of these things are leading to isolation at alarming rates. Uh, this week I was, I spent the week in Las Vegas, and let me tell you, the poker tables are hot right now, and that's not, just <laughs> kidding. That's not why I was there. Um, I was doing a church planner training in Las Vegas. How many know God is moving in Las Vegas still? Uh, doing cre- incredible things. We had 14 teams, about 100 people from all over the country gathered together uh, to do a training. And uh, it's amazing because I have these, all these pastors and church planners who come into town. And the first night, it's kind of get to know each other. And we do training all day from about 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. It's intensive, it's a lot of information. And in the evenings, uh, we go eat dinner together. We hang out, we spend life together and, you first get to know somebody and it's like, hey, what's your story? Where are you from? Tell me about your kids, your family. And then the, the second night is, tell me about what's going on in your life, your, your, your family, your ministry. It gets a little bit deeper. And by the third and fourth day together, guess what? The walls are down. And now it's, hey, can I tell you what's happening with my life? I mean, we're going through a significant season of, of just discouragement. We're just discouraged right now with life and what we're seeing. We're, we're struggling in our marriage. And how many know pastors are hungry for relationship just like you and I? just like you and I. And it's amazing to see just in a short time of relationship, people begin to open their life and share some of their issues and worries and fears, and then all of a sudden, it's just kind of like this co-ministering to each other as we kind of share what we're walking through. If you're taking notes and following along, here's what I believe, that community deepens when we're honest about our brokenness and willing to practice vulnerability with one another. This is where community gets real. How many know a family does not simply share the good moments together, do they? A family shares the the, the rough moments. You don't live every moment on the mountaintop. You don't experience every moment just mountaintop to mountaintop. You have to walk through the valleys, and the valleys create a depth of relationship that just the mountaintops can't create. You walk through difficulty together, something happens. And as family, you're called to do that. This idea of like, I'm not going anywhere. We're always gonna be family, and so we've gotta figure this out. We have gotta walk through this together. Here's the struggle with vulnerability that you feel and that I feel, is that there's something fighting within us. Number one is this, being vulnerable, we're leaving ourselves open to potential attack or harm, right? By being vulnerable, you're giving somebody the ammunition that they could use against you, right? Like, I'm, I'm trusting you with this information. What are you gonna do with it? What are you gonna do with it? And that causes fear. The second thing we war with is this, by being vulnerable, we're also opening ourselves to truly experiencing freedom and life and the love of others. So the question becomes, do I risk it? Do I risk vulnerability knowing what the outcome could be, both good and both bad? What do I do? Most famous TED talk ever listened to, ever watched, Brene Brown, she wrote a book called Daring Greatly. On vulnerability, as I talked about this in first service, everybody nodding their heads, a lot of Brene Brown fans in here. She says, vulnerability is at the core of shame and fear in our struggle for worthiness, but it is also the birthplace for joy, love, creativity, belonging, etc. Isn't this the tension you and I wrestle with? We know that we wanna be in a place where we're fully known and fully loved, and yet the fear of what could be if we're exposed or somebody knows or they they judge us or they use this information against us keeps us trapped, doesn't it? What do we do? If you're taking notes, as, as the family of God, we were created to practice vulnerability in the right places with the right people. How many know wisdom teaches us that you can't be vulnerable everywhere with everyone? Not everybody can accept that, right? That's wisdom, and if you don't know that, please take that, because you can't share everything with everybody. You gotta learn the right places, the right people. Who can I trust with what I've given them? This morning with you, I'm gonna practice today appropriate vulnerability with you, because there's some things you don't wanna know or need to know about your pastor, amen? You're like, pastor, that's that's TMI right there, come on now. But there's some things that you do need to know, Because it's so easy to hide. It's so easy to kind of be cloaked under an image of, you know, I've got it all together. And pride, which is very active in all of our lives and our sinful nature, will tell us that we just need to act like we've got it all figured out. And then behind closed doors, what happens? We medicate ourselves. Medicate yourself with what? You fill in the blank with a lot of different things. We bury the abuse that we suffered. We just bury it. If I don't deal with it, if I don't talk about it, if nobody knows, it can't affect me. Or maybe we're just angry. You feel like I'm just such an angry person and it always comes out sideways. Like anger comes out on the people that I love the most. My, my spouse, my kids, my, my friends, my family. Why is that? Like there's so much bitterness and hurt and it just, it comes out and, and you know it's there, but you don't wanna talk about it. We struggle with our sexuality. We struggle with our marriage. We struggle with addiction to pornography. Nobody can know. We fight depression. We fight mental illness and darkness. Nobody can know. And if I, if I tell that part of my life, what will, what will they think of me? What will be the response? And here's what the enemy does. The enemy lies to you and tells you you have no other option but to live in the darkness. Because the... the, the Choice of living in the light and moving into the light. The consequences are too great. That's what the enemy does. Locks us, traps us. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always, always, let me say it again, always leading us into deeper places of being known. Always. The Holy Spirit is always, let me say it again, always, always pushing you out of the darkness into the light. Why, because the Holy Spirit is more about your freedom than about your comfort. I'll say it again. Holy Spirit's more about your freedom than your comfort. There's nothing comfortable about vulnerability. It's the antithesis of comfort. It is, it's, it, everything within us is like, no, I don't want this peace to be known, and yet the Holy Spirit is saying, on the other side of this, there's more blessings than you could ever imagine. Don't let the fear, the what-ifs, the unknowns keep you. I had to recognize early in my life that if I'm uncomfortable, usually it's because the Holy Spirit is at work. And let me just tell you, right now your pastor is very uncomfortable because this is a message this morning I did not wanna preach. Ask my wife last night as we were talking about it. The enemy loves isolation. The enemy loves lies. How many know isolation is the place where enemy will tell you things and you know like, I, I, I've preached a message on this. I've done an eight-part series on identity, but when I'm alone with my own thoughts, how many know the enemy lies to me, will tell me something? I'll be around the right people, and I'll start talking about this, and they'll be looking at me like, you don't actually believe that about yourself, do you? Haven't we all been there before? Like, the enemy lies to you in isolation. The enemy keeps you in the darkness. The enemy loves to remind you that you are nothing more than what you struggle with, what you're going through. The enemy loves whispering to you, you can do this on your own. Look, you've been managing it for 13 years. Look how great you are. You don't got this on your own. See, when you know who you are in Christ and that you're deeply loved, when you find your identity in Christ and and you learn to wrap yourself in who God says you are, then a couple things happen. You don't feel the need to hide anymore. The fear of what other people may think or do no longer dictates your life, amen? Amen. You don't feel the need to edit your past. You ever been there? You don't feel the need to masterfully orchestrate your vulnerability where you always come out looking good. You ever been around those people? They're like, I just need to share some brokenness in my life, but then it all comes about how great they are. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Wait a minute. You don't feel the need to only show the healed scars and not the open wounds. People, let me tell you what God brought me through a long time ago. You're like, bro, that was two weeks ago. Come on now. That's the present. <laughs> two weeks ago is still the present. You're still going through it. It's okay. And the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life wants to move us from where we are to freedom. They're gonna put this on the screen. I don't know where you fall in this paradigm, but but let me encourage you. The first step is you have to move out of isolation. You can't experience the life God intended for you in isolation. And the first step is toward friendship. The first step is being known. I don't care if you're an introvert. You have to make yourself known. You have to step out of your comfort zone. You have to allow other people to get the chance to know you. You have to be intentional because guess what? Nobody else is gonna be intentional about your life if it's not you. I don't have a relationship that deep in my life that fell in my lap. There's not one of them. I was intentional with every single one of them. I had to go to them. I had to put them in place. I had to ask them for what I needed in my life. You have to put yourself out there and then friendship can actually move into community and community is where things get real. Community is where we commit ourselves to each other. Community is where we get past the surface and we begin to open up our lives and how we know community takes proximity. Proximity means closeness. You have to be around each other in spaces, And then if we do this, then maybe it can move to discipleship. We're no longer just kind of getting to know each other committed, but we're actually helping shape and form each other into the image of Jesus. Like I'm now fighting for your freedom. Your freedom means something to me. Your marriage means so much to me that if I need to show up on your porch one night and 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 help you and your family and your marriage get through it, I'll do it because I'm just as committed to you. We need each other. And tell me, let me tell you, church, if we're gonna become family, you gotta stop hiding. You have to stop hiding. Second Corinthians 12. This morning's a little bit different message. I'm not gonna go as deep into the text as I normally would. Second Corinthians is Paul's defense. And doesn't it stink that Paul has to defend himself to a church that he planted and that he loved? He discipled these individuals, he led them to Jesus. We know they had a lot of problems, read first Corinthians. But Paul leaves. While Paul's gone, these false teachers infiltrate the church. These false teachers not only infiltrate the church with different beliefs, but they begin to attack Paul. Is Paul really uh, this source of apostolic authority? And they begin to attack several things about Paul. And one of them is they look at the church in Corinth and they're like, for one thing, Paul suffers way too much to have God's hand on his life. The guy's been through everything. If God was really with him, would he suffer so much? This is like good old fashioned prosperity gospel. And we know what that is in Tulsa, Oklahoma because it's everywhere. And I just always wanna look at the prosperity gospel and I was like, you have never read your Bible before. Because to equate the good life with prosperity is to negate everything in scripture that says you will walk through difficulty. You will walk through suffering. Paul walked through it. His yes to Jesus meant a struggle, right? And so these false teachers are like, suffers way too much. Not only that, we've had these mystical encounters with God. We've had these supernatural encounters with God that have set us apart. So follow us, reject the, the the teachings of Paul. So Paul has to write an entire letter to his own children in the faith to say, "Hey, this ain't it. These people aren't it." We get this really famous passage in 2 Corinthians 12:1. Let's read it. Paul says, "I must go on boasting." Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses." Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think of me more than is warranted by what I do or say. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. These false teachers boasting and bragging about this special relationship they have with God, and Paul's like, I'm not gonna boast in that. If if I wanted to, I could. Paul says, I know a guy 14 years ago who was on the road to Damascus, who had this radical encounter with God and was caught up into the third heaven. You know, Paul's talking about himself here. And he's like, and I could boast in all those things, but I'm not gonna boast it. It's kind of humble brag moment from Paul. I could, but I'm not going to. Paul's like, these people love to boast in their mystical experiences that they had with God. Guess what? A lot of people have had genuine encounters with God, but look at the fruit of their life. What does the fruit say? What do they do with their life? Anybody can claim to have this great relationship with God, but what does your life say about it? Paul says, I'm going to boast in something else. And the text says this these are difficult passages right here. He says, In order to keep me from being conceited, puffed up, thinking of myself more highly than I should, full of pride, as God was moving and at work and as they were being, people were being healed and all these things were happening through the ministry of Paul. Paul says, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. I love sitting in classes in my undergrad graduate studies and people would be like, let's talk about what the thorn in the flesh was. And there's some crazy hypotheses out there about what this is. Here's the, here's the, end, uh, the end of this discussion, we don't know. People were like, oh, it was his struggle, the, the persecution from other people. Oh, he had eyesight problem or he struggled with you know, debilitating back issues. We don't know what it is. I mean, you can kind of fill in the blanket and if we needed to know, we would know. But all he says is it was horrible. And Paul said, I pleaded three times for it to leave. And guess what? God didn't take it away. He didn't take it away. And Paul had been struggling for 14 years with whatever this thorn in the flesh was. And the only response he got was this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says these false teachers are gonna boast in how great they are, guess what I'm gonna boast in? How weak I am and how powerful God is at working it within me, amen? How many of you know that's flipping everything on its end? That's not what we usually boast about. Let me tell you, Paul wasn't some kind of masochist that loves to suffer. He wasn't some kind of weirdo that was just like, yes, the more the suffering, the better. No, he says, take it away. I, I don't want to walk this path, I don't want to go down this road. But because I have to, I will declare the goodness of God as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Amen? Charles Spurgeon, 19th century, one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, built orphanages, helped serve the poor, led in a time where the church had kind of lost their way and helped kind of reclaim uh, the the road of orthodoxy and what was true and right. Charles Spurgeon suffered with bouts of severe, severe depression. In fact, it got so bad at times that he couldn't even hardly function. He endured ridicule for standing up for truth in a very difficult time. People began to come against him He cared for his wife, who was an invalid. For most of their marriage, she was either in bed or in a wheelchair. For a third of his life, the last third of his life, his physical ailments were so bad, he couldn't stand up behind a pulpit and preach any longer. And yet Charles Spurgeon would say, when we are humbled and weak, Christ is exalted in us. Not an easy message. This morning, I wanna be appropriately vulnerable with you. Several weeks ago during our Lent journey, I I delivered a message called Surrender My Shame. I talked a little bit about my journey. I said that I felt like God was calling me to tell you the rest of the story. By no means am I comparing my suffering or my brokenness with anyone else. I believe the rest of this this morning is an act of obedience. I was flying home in the plane on Friday working on this and I thought to myself, I would rather preach any other message than this one right here. Several months ago I was sitting in my counselor's office going through a time of personal brokenness and he looked at me and he asked me these questions. He says, Matt, what if God doesn't remove this brokenness and discomfort from your life? What if, like Paul, you have to learn to manage the brokenness and weakness in a way that draws you to his heart and his strength? What if God wants to use you in this season of your life through your weaknesses instead of your strengths. How many of those are really good questions that you don't want to be asked? I've journeyed with this counselor for a long time. He's an incredible man of God. Thirty years as a pastor. How many of you know you don't show up counseling one time and get fixed, right? I just need to say that for everybody who has that misconception. He's earned the right to ask me hard things. He said, who knows about this journey you've been on? And I said, I think the right people know. My circles, my groups. Does your church know this? I said, the majority of people know. Why haven't you shared this with them? Because I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think God wants to do with this part of your story? As a young pastor, I just always knew pastors were supposed to be in control, you were supposed to have the right answers, you were strong, you you didn't show weakness. As I've gotten older, I've learned to let go some of those misconceptions because honestly, I see a bunch of the people that I loved and respected the most not finish well. And I think part of it is because we'd rather project like we've got it all together than be real about the things that are broken. Some of you know this story, some of you don't. I'm gonna recap for you, many of you don't. 2014 and 2015, I went on a missions trip here at City Church, please go on a missions trip, they're great, this probably won't happen to you. Where I got sick, came back, um, took the medicine to help clear out my system, parasite, did not get any better, got worse. Spent the next two years going through a lot of difficulties, some self-inflicted and some that I just had to go through with my health. It's a very dark place. Um, By the time it was discovered what I had, I had gone through four different doctors, Uh, Discovered that I had a parasite over a foot long in my large intestine. Come on now, that's disgusting. (laughs) Destroyed a lot of my large intestine. My thyroid wasn't working properly. We were running three services at the ballet ballet at that time. I remember sometimes I would be so nauseous I would take a little pill just to help me get through. By the third service, this podium right here, I remember I would sometimes just be kinda be leaning over on it. Just please, please, can I get to the end of this message? I began to recover in 2017 and 19. I would have bad days, but my strength is returning. My digestive system, other than an act of God, a miracle would probably never be the same. I would have good and bad moments, but I was starting to have more good days than bad days. In the summer and fall of 2019, life and ministry had never been busier. Obviously, married, four kids, life is busy. Just released my first book, The Beauty of the In Between. only took me seven years to write it, so I was excited about it. We had five church plants and seed network that we're about to launch. We were excited, five new life-giving churches that we were coaching and training. We were headed to Burundi in a few months. Pastor Steven and Bailey are here in the room. We were about to go do a pastor's conference. We had just started the church planning school uh, that we were building at that time. We were excited to have 100 pastors, so in Burundi, gather around that fall and, and do a teaching with them. We were in the midst of launching our City West location At that time, Pastor Bodie and Pastor Rachel were launching out to plant a city church location just on the west side of our city. We were in the middle of moving houses. How many love to move, right? We weren't even moving that far from one midtown location to the next, but it it got a little strenuous. The, The sale didn't go through on our first house, so we were carrying two houses for a little while, going back and forth, trying to manage that. How many, that is not fun at all. Put stress in a lot of areas. We had just started negotiations on this church building. We found out that this building was for sale. We were going after it. We had finalized a purchase price for it. My mother-in-law, who had been suffering from a debilitating lung disease for years and years and years, were starting to go downhill. She was no longer able to live alone. She lived in more, and so Lindsay and I, part of the moving into the new house was to move my mother-in-law in with us. We didn't know how long she had left, but we wanted her last days, months, years to be the best and to be with us. So we move her in with us. Two weeks after she moves in with us, she begins to go downhill rapidly. She goes downhill so quickly that um, we call hospice out there like she's already transitioned to end of life. We don't get her in any kind of facility. She passes away in our guest room of our new house with our kids sleeping upstairs. We're walking through the difficulty of losing someone you love. My wife has lost her mom. That same week, I get a call from one of our trustees here at City Church The agreement that we had on this building was not gonna go through. We had now lost this building. The owner was being sued by the bank and the bank was gonna take ownership of this. I remember literally in the middle of this with my mother-in-law getting that call, thinking I don't even know what we do with that right now. Several other major things happened at that time and out of respect for others, and to be appropriately vulnerable with you, I'm not gonna share all the other details. At that time in my life, I. Like I would always done my life, my life, I'm able to do a lot of different things at one time. You, you pick yourself up by the bootstraps, you just keep moving forward. You do what you have to do, right, to get things done in seasons of your life. Except all of a sudden, I was waking up in the middle of the night like I had just run a marathon, but I hadn't. I had a feeling in my stomach that would kinda come and go, and yet now it was coming but not going. I would get shortness of breath One afternoon, I had a heaviness in my chest that I literally thought I was having a heart attack. Didn't know what it was at that time. Called a friend of mine. In fact, he texted me this morning, Jamie Austin, pastor at Woodlake Church. I'm talking to Jamie on the phone. Jamie's like, you're having a panic attack. I had one in 2015. Like, I guess this is something all pastors know, but I didn't know yet. Hadn't gone there yet. He's like, you're having a panic attack. You need to go to your doctor and then you need to go to your counselor. I go to the doctor. They check all the boxes. Yep, your heart's good. Good. Kinda what I thought, I go to my counselor, again a man of God that I've trusted for a long time, he said, well let's list some of the things that you're walking through right now in your life and he gets out his whiteboard and we get to the end of his whiteboard and he was like, should I erase and start, you know, keep going or what should I do here? Because the list was so extensive. And he just looked at me and he said, hey, you probably knew this time was gonna come, right? Like you have hit your limitations that you cannot do it all. You can't carry it all, you've tried, but now this is your body's way of telling you what you're not willing to tell yourself, that you have hit this peak, you just can't do it, and your body is literally shutting down. Summer of 2020, health declined again. 45 straight days with some low-grade fever. I thought it was an autoimmune disease. Go through all the testing. I'm allergic to almost every food I'm eating. It's always digestive with me. It's gonna take a lifestyle change. A lot of different things. Lost a ton of weight. During this time, I discovered that my health struggles that I'd been going through and these anxiety attacks and some of this were related. And I was figuring this out. I was diving into the implications of why. Some deeper things that I guess I had never discovered that this need to be perfect that was driving me and this need to achieve. And so some Sundays I would get up here and guess what? I wanna hit a home run every Sunday. Every time I speak, I wanna bring the best. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Until you have this desire to be perfect. And guess what? You can't be perfect, right? And so I wouldn't be feeling good physically, but I would have this drive and I, it would cause this anxiety and panic in me and that you can't, you can't do it. You can't live up to expectation. You're not gonna be able to do this as well as you want to. And let me just tell you this morning, I'm not gonna code over this like, oh, this was all in the past. I have seen incredible improvement and I'm still working through it. I go to a therapist every week now. Come on now. Not just once a month. And I'm seeing improvement, but it's not something that I've just, I'm done with. Had to walk through it. I wouldn't choose it. There's more good days than bad days. There's more good Sundays than bad Sundays. February 19th was our first service in this new building. Some of you were here. Yeah, it was a great day, wasn't it? It wasn't for me. I woke up feeling horrible that day. And immediately I was like, this is our first Sunday. Like this is big. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do this. And I began to feel that feeling. Rise up, start in my stomach, into my chest. all Sunday, people were like, Pastor, isn't this amazing? Awesome. You know what I thought the whole time? Get me the HE double hockey sticks out of here. That's what I was feeling inside. And only a few people knew that. It stinks. Matt, what if God doesn't remove this brokenness and discomfort from your life? What if you have to learn to manage the brokenness and weakness in a way that draws you to God's heart, God's strength? Guys, that'd been really good in second service. I've balled all the way through first service, so we're improving here. It's a really fun one to preach twice, let me tell you. And getting to the place where I could say, God, If this brokenness leads me to your heart in a way that I didn't know you before, I will rejoice in it while simultaneously asking for you to remove it. But if it opens my heart to you, if it brings me to your heart, if it humbles me in a way that keeps me close to you, I will rejoice in it, sometimes through gritted teeth. But here's what I've learned, and here's what I wanna encourage you with this morning. In order to be free, you have to be vulnerable. You have to destroy your pride. You have to open your life to the right people. Stop editing the parts that nobody needs to know. Stop saying, you know, start saying the last two and 5% that you don't wanna say. You with me? The right places with the right people. I've never shared this part from stage. I didn't necessarily wanna share this part from stage. I I felt like it was a step of obedience. I felt like to be a family of vulnerability, like the Holy Spirit was saying, well, you're gonna have to lead the way in this. And that's uncomfortable. I didn't do everything right in this journey, but let me tell you what I did get right. I have great people in my life, places that are safe, places of honesty and vulnerability. I have an incredible wife so many times in my in my life to try to protect her i minimize things that's one of the things i'm horrible at i'll minimize the pain that i'm going through in order to protect other people and i have to stop doing that i have great doctors i have great counselors and therapists one that started sitting attending city church i don't even know if you're here in the room Stuart, but if you are i'm grateful for you a great inner circle of men Places where I walk in every other week and I sit down with these group of guys. We've been journeying together eight, for eight years. I talk about it all the time. I don't have to be a pastor. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to fix anybody. It's awesome. They already know everything about me, so I don't have to hide. I don't have to conceal. I don't have to project the best parts of myself. How many know everybody needs a place like that? You know how that started? Because eight years ago, when I was walking through darkness in 2014 with my sickness, I went to those four men and I said, guys, I'm struggling and I need you. And then lo and behold, what I realize is they're all looking for the same thing I am. If we're gonna be free, if we're gonna be family, we have to practice vulnerability. And let me tell you, God moves mightily on the other side of vulnerability. Almost every month, I'll have a a gentleman, a dad, a young man walk into my office. He's beating around the bush. Didn't wanna talk about it. So Pastor, I'm kind of like, and I just finished, you're struggling with pornography. Yes. And that moment he exposes it for the first time. And guess what happens? Healing. Healing. I'm telling you. The darkness that has been in isolation and fear for so long. Like you just begin to speak it. And let me tell you, something happens about it, right? Something literally changes in the spiritual realm when you have removed the darkness and you've brought it into the light. Now there is space for God to do what what God could not do beforehand. God wants to do something, but you have to expose it, right? In the right places with the right people. Pastor, I was abused and I have lived under this abusive mentality for years, thinking that it was my fault. You are the one abused, it's not your fault. You didn't do that. But you've lived with that and you have to expose it to the light, right? To the right people. I don't know if this is a message for everybody in this room, it's probably not. It's it's one for me and it's for a few people that you're walking through brokenness or God's moving you into vulnerability. Let me ask you these two questions as we wrap up this morning. Number one, in what ways is God calling you to move towards vulnerability with the right people? If I can challenge you with one thing, do not allow the fear of what could be keep you from your freedom, amen? Don't allow the enemy to sell you that lie. And number two is this, in what ways is God using your weakness to draw you to his heart and his strength? Because here's what I wanna pray with you. God, remove the thorn, remove the struggle, remove the burden. I pray that you move out of this season into a new one. But until then, you know what we do? And here it is. Shape me, move in me. If you would this morning, stand your feet across this place. Just right where you're at, just close your eyes, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. If I've learned anything, you can preach a message, but it's the Holy Spirit that does the work, the drawing, the convicting. Some of you this morning, you have felt the weight and the burden that you have been carrying alone in isolation for so long. And your heavenly Father who loves you is whispering to you, saying, come into the light. Allow my body, the church, the people of God, to be a safe place for you. Allow them to bandage your wounds. You can't bandage something you don't know is there. Some of you, he's giving you the courage to be vulnerable. Yeah, you've been hurt. You share with somebody the details and they didn't steward it well. You can't stop. You can't, you can't go back in fear. There's too much at stake. There is too much at stake. Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would move in this room, in your people. The last thing we wanna be is a group of people that act like we've got it all together projecting the best. God, we want to be authentic and real. Open about our brokenness and yet moving towards freedom and life in Jesus. So God, we thank you for the scars. We thank you for the wounds. We thank you for the thorns that draw us to your heart. God, I thank you how you have revealed yourself to me in this brokenness. God, I'm so grateful how you have revealed your love and goodness, how you have sustained, how you have torn down my pride by learning to trust in you daily. I just ask right now, just feel like the Holy Spirit, just moving specifically in people. I haven't called out your specific brokenness, but the Holy Spirit's already speaking to you. And I want to heal you today. I want to carry that with you. Oh, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I see you. I know you. I'm walking with you. I'm walking with you. I'm walking.